Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. 2018 marks 200 years since the publication of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, a book that is just as relevant today as it was back then. Today Shelley's creature lives on as an embodiment of society's anxieties about where science is taking us. In this episode, Philip Ball is joined by Miranda Seymour, Frank James and Angela Wright to discuss the context in which the book was written and how the tale has become a popular myth with a life of its own, independent of Shelley's original text. This, as John alluded to briefly, is the first of five events at the RI exploring the legacy of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, which was published 200 years ago, as you all know, um, the 200 years ago this month. In later events, there are five in total, in later events we'll be looking at some of the modern ideas, scientific ideas and developments that find a resonance in Shelley's book. Tonight we're going to delve further into the book itself and the author and her circumstances, her environment, her times. Every time, now here's the click, because have we got, yes, lovely, you see I've, I've started with a, a, a low tone, it can only get better from here, because um, every time I delve further into Frankenstein, I'm more deeply astonished at what it contains and how extraordinary it is that Mary Shelley, or Mary Godwin, as she was when she started uh, uh, thinking about the story, wrote it at such a young age. Um, and I know that uh, there are people, there might even be people on this panel, who have debated the literary merits of the book. To my mind, um, that question opens up a whole debate about how we discuss and how we value literary merit, what we mean by that. Um, here at the RI, we're naturally going to be focused more on the scientific and lit- uh, than the literary aspects of the book, but we'll look at both tonight. Um, but I want to register right from the outset that it seems to me that our cultural decision, it seems that we've taken, that the book is a warning about scientific hubris, that it's a book about science gone wrong. I think this is too simplistic a way to look at what is a profoundly rich but also ambiguous and ambivalent text. I just wanted to show you my earliest memory of uh, having encountered Frankenstein. Um, I remember making this Aurora model kit, which glows in the dark. I think the hands glow in the dark. It must have sat there spookily on my bedside table every night after I put it together. And the box for this kit just said Frankenstein. As far as I was concerned, this was Frankenstein. This wasn't Frankenstein's creature. And um, sometime in my early uh, childhood, and again, I forget exactly when, I um, encountered this chap as well. And this isn't Boris Karloff on a good day. Um, This isn't even Frankenstein's creature itself. Of course, it's Herman Munster. And my point is that when we finally get, if we ever do, to Shelley's book itself, we'll be inevitably reading it through a haze of culturally shaped preconceptions. I think many readers, in fact, I've heard people say to me, they've been surprised at what, in the face of all of this, they actually find in Mary Shelley's words. And one response to that uh, situation is to say that the story has been traduced, bowdlerized, butchered, distorted by Hollywood and all the rest of this. I prefer to say that there are two things. There is the book and there is the myth, and we need to recognize that those two things are different. But it's really to the book 
uh, and to the life and the environment that shaped the book that we're going to turn now. And to discuss those, we have a truly wonderful panel, a truly wonderful and knowledgeable panel to, to speak about it. Um, on, uh, first on my right is Miranda Seymour, who is a leading biographer and critic, um, and she wrote what many consider to be the definitive biography of Mary Shelley in 2000. It's been reissued this year, um, and uh, she's also written the introduction to the folio edition of Frankenstein. And also uh, this year, in a month or, uh, or so, um, Miranda's uh, most recent, m m her new book is going to be published by Simon & Schuster, and I suspect that that too will be a reading for many of you because it's called In Byron's Wake, The Turbulent Lives of Lord Byron's Wife and Daughter, Annabella Milbank and Ada Lovelace. Um, and the book looks at the scientific world in which, uh, the, in which both Ada Lovelace and Mary Shelley lived. Um, and to my mind, actually, Ada Lovelace is a character who crops up in the Frankenstein myth. Um, next is, is Frank James, who is Professor of the History of Science and Head of Collections here at the RI. And his main research has been editing the uh, uh, correspondence of Michael Faraday, of which there is an immense amount. It's now in uh, the, um, six volumes have been published. I've got one of them, and the, that itself is absolutely immense. Um, and he's currently writing a book on Humphrey Davies' practical work um, and has always had a strong interest in the relationships between science and other areas of society and culture. And in fact, the connections between Davy and Mary Shelley and indeed the RI itself are significant. And we'll hear more about that from Frank. Uh, and then um, on my far right is Angela Wright, who is Professor of Romantic Literature in the School of English at the University of Sheffield and was uh, a former co-president of the International Gothic Association. And her latest <coughs> book is also about Mary Shelley. In fact, it's just called Mary Shelley, published uh, uh, this month. Is that yes, right, Angela? Right. And it looks in particular at the text, and at the, um, it looks closely at the two editions that were published um, of this book during Mary, Mary Shelley's lifetime, and at some of the other major works that Mary Shelley published between those two. And I think how we interpret Frankenstein, the book, has, has, is, is strongly dependent on which edition we read. It really does matter. And, um, and the revised version, it seemed to me, uh, and I'd be interested to know what Angela uh, thinks of this, shows that Mary herself was already, to some extent, perhaps starting to accommodate the myth of Frankenstein that had started to arise. So each of the panellists will speak for about 10 minutes, um, uh, after which we'll discuss some of the issues that arise, and then finally I'll open up discussions, the discussion to questions from you. So let's get started um, with Miranda. I've been told this is the sweet spot I have to stand in, so I hope I'm going to sound sweet to you. Um, in 1818, Byron exclaimed to his publisher, John Murray, at how extraordinary it was that a woman so young, such a girl as Mary Shelley, could have written such a book. And what I'm going to do is look back at her life until she wrote Frankenstein and try and explain a little bit about why it was, in a way, not remarkable. She was already the child of two remarkable writers. We tend to forget that when we look at Mary's own eloquent style. Her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, and her father was William Godwin. Very different kind of writers, of course, and very different personalities. Mary Wollstonecraft um, had given birth already to an illegitimate 
girl called Fanny Imlay, who was very close to Mary until her own death and lived, lived with her. And um, Mary Wollstonecraft had been out in France at the time of the French Terror, um, which may well have influenced her daughter later. And she met William Godwin in London, a very serious, um, solemn man who didn't seem likely ever to marry anybody. And he fell completely head over heels in love with Mary Wollstonecraft. They married in order to legitimize their little girl who was born on August the 30th, 1797. And her mother, tragically, 11 days later, died of puerperal fever. And what that does to a little girl to realize that this extraordinary woman who was revered by part of the world and vilified by part of the world after the heartbroken Godwin wrote a memoir of his wife, which was far, far too candid for her reputation to survive well. Um, Mary grew up as a beloved and revered little girl in this man's house, um, with him saying rather sadly that the person least equipped to be a parent was himself, William Godwin. And perhaps that was partly why he quite quickly, in 1801, married a neighbour, um, Mary Jane Clement, who had apparently ogled him from a local balcony and had caught his eye. But they had a very happy marriage. She was a very business-like woman. She was very efficient. And she had children of her own, Jane, who became later Clara and would be slightly the nightmare and bane of, of poor little Mary Godwin, Mary Shelley's life. And a son called Charles, who is a, a, was a very sweet young man, but doesn't play much part in this story. So all the children grew up together, first in the Polygon in Summerstown, which you can still see today, and then in Skinner Street, very aptly named, because it was in the area of Smithfield, where all the butchery of animals was done. And again, one thinks of Frankenstein to come when you think of all the animals being, um, well, hacked to bits and the blood running in the gutters outside Mary's window. That was where Godwin ran his bookshop with his wife and where Mary, living upstairs as a little girl, um, invented stories, looked out of the window and rowed with her stepmother. And possibly because of the rows with her stepmother, was sent away to Ramsgate for six months of miserable schooling at Miss Petman's Academy. And then, possibly again by her father to get her away from this difficult relationship, she was sent up to Dundee, and that, so she tells us in the 1831 preface, is where she first began to have ideas about stories. And it was from Dundee that whaling ships went out to search in the Arctic. And there was a ship, the Rodney, which just before Mary arrived there in 1812, had been caught in pack ice and trapped. So that may have also fed into Mary's beginning outer story of Frankenstein. Returning to London, Mary met a newcomer to her father's house, a young man who had very tactlessly written to William Godwin and said that, frankly, he was amazed to find he was still alive, but delighted to do so. And this was Percy Shelley, rich, maverick, brilliant, married, and 
the minute he saw Mary bewitched, partly because she was the daughter of the wondrous Mary Wollstonecraft, partly because she was such an appealing, brilliant, extraordinary young woman in her tartan frock with her very, very pale face and her flaming red hair. And the two of them are said to have first made love on the grave of Mary Wollstonecraft, where Mary first learned to trace her letters. And it's thought that that's where their first child was conceived. Sorry, I must look, because I know I'm going to be scolded. I don't even know, because I'm... You're I'm doing fine. Am I do yes. how, how many more minutes have I got? Oh, a five, so... Five, that's, yeah, that's good. I'm doing quite well. Sorry, I've got my watch on upside down, so it wasn't helping me very much. <laughs> Back to Mary and Percy. Um, Godwin, when he married Mary's mother, had been a bit of a revolutionary still. Slightly, um, not so much the revolutionaries he had been when he supported the French Revolution, but still not believing in marriage, although he did marry her. By the time Mary had become a young lady, he had a very, very different view of how life should be ordered. So he was distraught when Mary, Percy, and the ever-present Claire, still Jane, until she got to France, I think, set off on a six-week tour of Europe, which turned into an elopement. And Mrs. Godwin went hounding after them to Calais and was turned back. And the little party continued. And what they were trying very sweetly to do was to follow in the footsteps of both Mary Wollstonecraft's um, own writings and Godwin's novels. Godwin himself was a much admired novelist and several of his novels had been set in Switzerland. So with not much thought of how it was all going to work out money-wise, off they went to settle in a commune in Switzerland from which Percy would write helpful letters to his wife in England, suggesting she could come and join them and learn from the wonderful Mary Godwin how to be a real independent lady. Um, Harriet didn't respond. <coughs> they ran out of money and came back down the Rhine, and it was there when they stopped off at somewhere called Mannheim that it's possible that Mary heard about Castle Frankenstein where somebody called Conrad Dippel many years before had been trying to find the elixir of life. So we keep seeing all these little possibilities that may have fed into the, the story of Frankenstein later. They came back to England and found Godwin's door slammed against them, and poor Fanny Imley, who was still living at home with old Godwin and his wife, became the kind of messenger going to and fro. To a rather desperate little household, um, very poor, very nervous, and very unhappy to be cut off from Godwin. And it was there that Mary, in January, um, let's get my dates right, 1815, gave birth, sorry, February 1815, gave birth to Clara, her first baby, who tragically died within weeks. And Mary wrote in her journal that she had dreams that her little baby had come to life again. And um, again, one thinks of what was to come in the way of reanimation. Um, <clears throat> A year later, she had another child, um, William, and William was born just on the verge of um, some rather exciting things that were going to happen in their lives. Um, Claire, the ever-present Claire, 
had um, the idea in her mind that if Mary had a poet, she would get a bigger and better poet. And it just, sorry, I'm putting it rather vulgarly, but it was pretty much like that. Byron was living on his own in London, having just been left by his wife, who had stuck it out for a year and left with little Ada, never to return. So Byron, who did not like being left on his own very much and, and probably was very welcoming to a pretty mysterious young woman when she finally appeared... Um, but he was particularly welcoming to Claire because she promised him that she would bring the celebrated Mary Godwin to visit him. And at this point, Byron became very interested indeed and welcomed young Mary Godwin into his drawing room and um, had a completely different relationship, of course, with Claire. And Claire was besotted. Byron was briefly amused. Claire persuaded Mary and Shelley, without much difficulty, to follow Byron out of the country to Geneva. And in fact, they were in such a hurry to meet up with him that they got there before him. And when Byron arrived, he, in a trice, found Claire knocking on his door and saying eagerly she was ready and willing. And Byron went across the lake. I sometimes wonder if he went to escape from Claire. But Soon, Claire and Mary and Percy were settled into a little cottage at the side of the Villa Diodati. And that, of course, is what one might vulgarly say is where all the fun began. In the famous summer of darkness caused by a distant volcano's eruption which affected the entire world's climate. And the weather, which had been beautiful blue and bright when they arrived, turned into weather that Mary found thrilling and described in, in her letters to Fanny as really exciting and the mountains were leaping with lightning. And all of this I will be leaving um, to others to describe because this is where the um, story of Frankenstein really comes to life. After a first evening in which, on the 16th of June, Byron suggested at the Villa Diodati they should all tell each other ghost stories and then think up stories of their own. Well, eventually, or perhaps quite quickly, we don't know because there are different versions of it, Mary had an idea for a story. And in 1831, in, when she was um, writing a preface to her second edition of Frankenstein, she said that she had had a reverie in which, like um, Coleridge, whose Kubla Khan they had been reading that summer out at the Villa Diodati, she had had this extraordinary dream in which she had seen a figure leaning over a bed, and then she then describes this extraordinary um, moment of animation and horror which comes into a chapter in the book. Um, <clears throat> Mary returned to England with Percy and with Claire, and Claire gave birth to little Allegra, and Frankenstein was written mostly um, near Henley-on-Thames at Marlow, with Percy um, improving upon it, uh, one might say, or one might not. I suspect one might not. I certainly think not. Um, in May 18... Have I got the right date? 18, 18, 1817, she had finished the book, and they began looking for publishers. In 1818, the beginning of the year, 
they went out to Italy again. And so Mary actually missed the whole excitement of how was her book, her anonymous novel, going to be received in England. And that part of the story, again, I will be leaving to, to others to tell. But what we do know is that many people thought Percy had written it. Scott actually wrote admiringly of Percy's wonderful book, and Mary was so annoyed she wrote, say, actually, my book, not Percy's book. And in 1823, when Mary returned to England after the tragic deaths, um, which would hauntingly be um, reawakened in her third novel, fourth novel, The Last Man, when she writes of a world in which everybody is dead except for one figure. And by 1822, she'd lost everybody except for her one remaining child of five, um, Percy the Younger, Percy Florence. She came back to England and wrote mockingly, low and she, lo and behold, I find myself famous, picking up Byron's words, because there suddenly was her Frankenstein on the stage. And it was as a stage production that it would become celebrated throughout the rest of Mary's life. And ironically, that life, which ended in 1852 in London um, when she died in Chester Square, um, the rest of that life, she would always be compelled to write as the author of Frankenstein because the Shelley family were so enraged by Percy having married such a dreadful woman and brought such disgrace upon them that that was the only name they would allow her to use. She could not use the name Shelley. Um, but Mary, of course, um, did a wonderful thing for Shelley himself in collecting all his poems and editing them. And it's really through Mary's efforts that we came best to know her husband's work. And I think that's where I will hand on to Frank. Thank you. Well, Frank. Can I have my slides, please? Okay, so what I'm going to talk about are coteries of literary and scientific intellectuals uh, who, whose story is highly contingent in bringing about Mary Shelley's uh, Frankenstein. Uh, the first two are Thomas Beddoes, a very radical physician uh, in Bristol, uh, and William Godwin, whom we've heard, who was also really radical in the 1790s, a support of the French, both supporters of the French Revolution, uh, both under Home Office uh, surveillance by the precursors of the modern uh, security forces. Um, Beddoes wanted to use gases to see if he could cure or at least mitigate some of the major uh, illnesses of the day, particularly um, uh, consumption, tuberculosis, which killed many people, and for this, he raised, in the teeth of serious political opposition, £2,000 to found the Medical Pneumatic Institution in Bristol. The building still stands. This is a sort of interwar photograph of it. And to run this building, run this institution, uh, he employed, through um, a very complex set of circumstances, uh, one Humphrey Davy uh, from Penzance, then aged 19, to be superintendent of the Medical Pneumatic Institution. Uh, Teenagers running things, doing things, 
uh, is not unusual uh, in the late 18th, uh, early 19th century. That was in the autumn of 1798. Uh, in the spring of the following year, Davy discovered the physiological properties of nitrous oxide laughing gas uh, using apparatus such as this. It's a recreated uh, laboratory of Beddoes, uh, which was in the Science Museum, but it's now, alas, been uh, demolished. And Davy would inhale several litres of laughing gas at a time. Not only that, he thought laughing gas cure hangover. On Christmas Eve, 1799, he drank a bottle of wine in eight minutes. I'm not sure even at the age of 20 I could have drunk a bottle of wine. Uh, and he says um, in his notebook, uh, it made me sick. And <laughs> nitrous oxide did not uh, cure it. Also, on the influence of seven litres, he wrote Davy and Newton, since he believed he was going to do for chemistry in the early 19th century what Isaac Newton had done for natural philosophy a century or so before. Notice Davy goes first, not Newton. Davy is an egotist uh, par excellence. Davy and the medical pneumatic institution started to become worried because um, uh, the government was beginning to sort of tighten up uh, on uh, political radicals. Uh, and Davy was very closely connected uh, with political radicals. The first time he went to London uh, in early December 1799, uh, he had dinner uh, with Godwin uh, and with Coleridge, uh, whom he'd only just met, really, because Coleridge had been in the German-speaking lands up until that point. Uh, and in the letter describing this dinner uh, to his friend Robert Southey, uh, Coleridge says, the cadaverous silence of Godwin's children is to me quite catacombish. And thinking of Mary Wollstonecraft, I was oppressed by it the day Davy and I uh, dined there. So you get, a, you get a sort of early impression of what, what uh, uh, Mary Godwin was like uh, at the age of just over two at that point. In the middle of 1800, Davy heard about the invention by Alexander Volta uh, of the electric battery, the voltaic pile, and this is Volta demonstrating it to the first consul uh, Napoleon uh, in Milan. Um, Volta, um, Italy was split between those people supporting Napoleon and those people who didn't support Napoleon. That political division would cause 30, 40 years of dispute about uh, what the cause of electricity in the battery was, um, because different sides, different political sides took different scientific uh, views. And that's what a battery looks like. And if you want to see that battery, it's downstairs in our museum. It's actually the battery. Uh, that Volta gave to Faraday uh, when they met in Milan in 1814. is um, my favourite object in our collections. Davy experimented in the latter half of um, 1800 uh, and realised electricity uh, had enormous potential. To Davis Giddy, his early patron, electricity will acquaint us with some of the laws of life. And to Coleridge, he wrote... I have made some important galvanic discoveries which seem to lead to the door of the temple of the mysterious god of life. So really very early on, Davy had this sort of belief that life and electricity were somehow connected. If you could understand electricity, uh, you could understand uh, the mechanisms of life. To give you an example of the government's dislike of what was going on in Bristol, in order to do um, experiments on electricity, to detect electricity, at that point, the only thing you could do was to pass an electric current through a frog and see it twitch. And to this end, Beddoes ordered uh, several hundred frogs to be delivered to Bristol. And the government agent provocateur 
put it around that the reason why Beddoes and Davy needed these fogs was to feed an invading French army. <laughs> Paranoia and xenophobia in one go. So it is not surprising that by the end of 1800, into the beginning of 1801, Davy decided to leave the medical pneumatic institution. He had to earn his living uh, by practicing science. Uh, if his income was cut, uh, what else could he do? So he moved, uh, quite remarkably, when you think about it, uh, to the Royal Institution under the patronage uh, of the president of the Royal Society of London, uh, Sir Joseph Banks. Uh, to say that Banks loathed Beddoes uh, would be to put it, uh, put it mildly. Um, and I often wonder about the interview panel uh, for Davy here in the Royal Institution. You have Banks, you have Cavendish, you have Count Mumford. And they would have known full well that the young 21-year-old Davy had this sort of serious radical background, which would, would you normally expect to have ruled him out ipso facto uh, from consideration. Maybe Banks and uh, Cavendish and Rumford thought that because he was so young, he, he would be malleable. Uh, maybe Davy made it clear that the only thing he was interested in was a career and that he would drop his political views. We don't actually know the details of the interview, it must have been a, but it must have been a fascinating social experiment. Nevertheless, for the first four years uh, that Davy uh, was in London, lecturing here in this theatre, uh, he kept in contact and was really part uh, of the Godwin uh, circle. Frequently dined with Godwin, either at Godwin's house. Godwin came here to attend uh, Davy's lectures uh, and so on. And Davy's lectures became really the most popular lectures uh, in wartime London. Uh, this is Gilvey's famous cartoon uh, showing the first professor of chemistry here, Thomas Garnett, in this theatre. There are the doors there. Administering nitrous oxide to the treasurer of the Royal Institution, Sir John Hippesy. Always a good idea to keep treasurers happy by giving them laughing gas. I try, should try it from time to time. Uh, with Davy over here, with a pair of bellows uh, about to knife Garnet, as Garnet uh, is dismissed uh, from or forced to resign uh, within about three months uh, of this image. So you can see the sorts of lectures that Davy was involved in uh, that made him so popular. Here's another very spectacular uh, lecture. Uh, Davy was very interested in geochemistry. What caused volcanoes? What caused earthquakes? What, how did um, minerals and rocks made? And this is Davy's model uh, of a volcano. Having discovered potassium uh, in um, 1807, uh, he filled a sort of sand, cone of sand with potassium and poured water on it to get a volcanic um, effect. Um, a really very spectacular experiment. And when we did it for some filming here, uh, we spent all day with health and safety officers getting it right. Davy just did it uh, in the, uh, <laughs> uh, the theatre. Now, one Davy's first major statement of chemical ideology occurs in a discourse he gave here uh, in 1802. And it's probably, I would say almost certainly, the book that uh, Mary Shelley or Mary Godwin uh, read. She certainly says she, she possessed one of Davy's books on chemistry. There are only two possibilities, this one uh, and his Elements of Chemical Philosophy. Um, and here, Davy explains quite carefully uh, the power of chemistry. 
Not contented with what is found upon the surface of the earth, he, the natural philosopher, has penetrated into her bosom and has even searched the bottom of the ocean for the purpose of allying the restlessness of his desires or of extending and increasing his power. And Mary Shelley, in Frank the first edition of Frankenstein, they, natural philosophers, penetrate into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. They have acquired new and almost unlimited powers. They can command the thunders of heaven, mimic the earthquake, and even mock the invisible world with its own shadows. Earthquake. So she's pay, she, she has paid attention somehow uh, to what Davy was, to the content of what Davy uh, was lecturing about. So did she attend um, Davy's lectures? Uh, this, by the way, is a, is a still from a film that's going to appear in this country um, in the next few months uh, on Mary Shelley sitting next to her mother's grave, which we just, we've just heard interesting things um, about. Um, well, she would have been about 13 when Davy stopped lecturing, having married a seriously unsuitable uh, heiress so he could, he could retire from being professor of chemistry at the age of 33, which is enviable, I suppose, in some, some extent. Um, we do know that there were some girls aged 11 who attended Davy's lectures. So it is not beyond the bounds of possibility uh, that Mary Godwin, accompanying her father, part of... Um, the um, uh, David, part of the Godwin network, uh, especially in the early part uh, of the 19th century, could have come here and heard um, uh, Davy lecture. Uh, we don't know. Uh, it's one of those sort of things that we may suddenly find a letter saying, uh, saw Mary Godwin at the, at, the, at the RI last night. You never know if these things do still turn up. But at the moment, I'm afraid to say, uh, all we can say is it's not beyond the bounds uh, of probability. One of the things she would have picked up uh, from Davies' early tract, though not from his later tracts, is a materialist view uh, of life. Um, in his um, uh, discourse of 1802, Davies gives a very brief, not particularly accurate, uh, history of science, history of chemistry, uh, winding up with alchemy. Hence arose the dreams of alchemy concerning the Philosopher's Stone and the elixir of life. <clears throat> Mary Shelley in Frankenstein again gives a history uh, of chemistry of alchemy, uh, winding up uh, with, saying, I, with Frankenstein saying in the narrative, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. Uh, spark of being is an interesting uh, phrase, uh, as, is in, as is infused, infused, goes back to the idea that electricity is some sort uh, of material entity, albeit an imponderable, weightless uh, entity. And it's a phrase that Anne Radcliffe used in the Mysteries, Mysteries of uh, Udolpho, so which is presumably something uh, that uh, Mary Godwin Shelley uh, was uh, aware of. So there are all sorts of uh, relations between Shelley's text and Davies' text and Davies' lectures uh, that need to be teased out. But so far as I've found, so far as anybody's found for that matter, uh, Davy never commented uh, on, uh, Frank on Frankenstein's text. By the time it was published in 1818, uh, Davy was a fully paid-up member of the establishment, um, knighted, created a baronet, in, also in 1818, interestingly enough, uh, and on his way to Naples to help the King of Naples uh, 
uh, unroll the um, papyri uh, excavated from Herculaneum. And in 1820, he will succeed the arch-conservative banks as president of the Royal Society of London. Uh, so Davy was always trying at this point to hide his radical background, and sometimes he took it to, to rather extreme lengths. But by 1818, he, was ra- he, he ceased to be radical, um, and he became a, a conservative president of the Royal Society of London, and so we have no comment at all from him on Frankenstein. Thank you. Thank you, and Angela. Okay, hello everyone. Um, I'm going to talk to you today and take you through a few passages from Frankenstein. Um, the first thing I want to say, though, is that when I look at um, the process of creation that Frank also mentioned there, where the scientist infuses a spark of being, um, Frank mentioned that that was a phrase that Anne Radcliffe had also used in The Mysteries of Udolpho. I'm also going to look at it in relation to the literary perspective. Now, the engraving that you have there is from the 1831 edition of Frankenstein. And I guess it's the most famous image that we have of that moment when the creator, the scientist, has just created this new human being and then he's escaping in his cloak absolutely terrified, leaving this creature at the forefront, um, completely abandoned and naked. Um, Frankenstein is one of these texts that I think that endures in our mythological psychology because of the very flexibility of the literary allusions that Mary Shelley used in it. Um, First of all, there's a myth of Prometheus, because it's called Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, where she takes um, the demigod who stole fire from Jove in order to benefit mankind. Um, She also uses and draws on very heavily John Milton's Paradise Lost, which was first published in 1688. And that's what she had as the epigraph to her novel, Did I request thee, maker, to mould me from man? Did I ask thee to bring me into being? That's it. Well, today I'm going to start by looking at chapter four of a novel, which Frank also alluded to, because actually this is where Mary Shelley began writing Frankenstein in 1816, after she first had the idea of it. And I think that this moment of creation is really key to how we read the rest of the novel afterwards and also how retrospectively we read what comes before it. Now, this is a moment in Frankenstein when, going back to that engraving from 1831, um, Victor Frankenstein first looks upon his creature. And I want to have a look at the literary allusions in this here. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe or how delineate the wretch with whom such infinite pains and care I had endeavoured to form? His limbs were in proportion and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful, great God. His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. 
His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same colour as the dun white sockets in which he was set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. So as he assembled parts of a newly formed body convulse first, Victor Frankenstein, the creator, only feels breathless horror and disgust here. Now, it's quite interesting in this passage to note just how Mary Shelley pays close attention to the workings of a human being, the arteries pulsing beneath the shriveled skin, and so on and so forth. But one of the things about this is that the way that she describes it here in many ways is also incredibly literary. To me, I read this as a per perversion of Renaissance blazon. So William Shakespeare, for example, in Sonnet 130, My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun, also talks about the breasts and the lips of his mistress and her lustrous black hair. And to me, it seems that Mary Shelley here is actually inverting that form of Renaissance blazon. Because in Shakespeare's Sonnet 130, flowing black hair and pearly white teeth are luxuriantly desirable qualities. But whereas Shakespeare's Sonnet focuses upon playfully negating you know, the, the benefits of having lustrous black hair and pearly white teeth. Frankenstein's kind of separation of the parts of his creature here serves only to emphasise a greater horror and certainly nothing of a charge, excitement and imagination that should have characterised romantic science. So at first glance, I think, if you look at this, you think, well, Frankenstein offers us a deeply negative perspective of science during the Romantic period. You know, this is about a the failure of an aesthetic vision, isn't it? And it kind of goes on to be about um, death and horror in the way that he keeps describing his creature. So here is another bit um, very close to that other passage where he's looking at his creature and basically he's precipitating his readership into simply a realm of horror and death. He compares his creature unfavorably with a reanimated mummy here, saying that no mortal could support the horror of that countenance. A mummy again endued with animation could not be so hideous as that wretch. I had gazed upon him while unfinished. He was ugly then. But when those muscles and joints were rendered capable of motion, it became a thing such as even Dante could not have conceived. So the elements of horror that Frankenstein lists here, I think, kind of lose a charge in a way because he tethers them so superficially to the realm of aesthetics. Um, horror becomes harnessed here to disfigurement and all too quickly he brutally reinforces this through terms such as hideous and ugly. But these are value judgments which we as readers I think are incapable of endorsing and Mary Shelley wanted us to feel incapable of endorsing that. 
Um, it's only when the creature acquires mobility here, when it can evade the gaze of its creator, that it in fact becomes an object of sublimity, something that cannot be contained within the realm of aesthetic references. A thing such as even Dante could not have conceived. Now, Mary Shelley was a huge fan of Dante. She kept returning and reading his Inferno. And Dante is deeply inscribed within Frankenstein, as well as some of her other novels, such as Valperga, which we, she published in 1823, and The Last Man in 1824. She wrote to Lee Hunt in a letter that she appreciated Dante's beauty in paradise just as much as his you know, ugliness that he depicted in the purgatory. And I think that Frankenstein participates in that alternate vision that Dante gave us in Inferno, the paradise and the purgatory, the hideousness, but also the beauty. Because the sublime of this novel, surely, is a sublime that seeks to expose the limitations of language and description. Because Victor Frankenstein, whenever he reaches for an illusion to try and tell us how hideous his creature is, fails miserably. He cannot, in fact, communicate to us just how hideous his is. So we encounter this incredible creature who becomes supremely eloquent, the most eloquent rhetorician in the novel, first of all as an object in this chapter that Mary Shelley first began by writing. But as an object, he becomes a version of the sublime vision of a creator because that creature challenges Frankenstein's ability to describe his creation. And it awards privilege, I think, equally to the scientific and the supernatural spheres. While Frankenstein remains motionless, suspended in horror at what he's created, later he considers a being nearly in the light of my own vampire, my own spirit loose from the grave and forced to destroy all that was near to me. Now, as Miranda had said at the beginning, at the Villa Diodati on Lake Geneva, the ghost story competition that Byron challenged everybody to participate in, vampires were very much in the mind of the participants. That's where John Polidori, Byron's physician, wrote the vampire, and Byron even had to go at a vampire tale himself. So this bit um, where Frankenstein says that he considers him nearly in the light of my own vampire is really important because it taps in to that ghost story competition. But I think that it also draws our attention to the, the psycho psychological flexibility of this novel, because this is a novel that has been described for its 200 years in many ways as having a Gothic vision. Now, Gothic literature is a literature that revels in inarticulously, in only partially legible manuscripts. And I think that this is absolutely part of that, because 
as the novel progresses and we see insights like this from Victor Frankenstein, we begin to question the psychology and the reality of his creature as, you know, another human being because he seems so persecuted and paranoid about his creature. Now, Miranda already um, took you through the preface to the 1831 edition of Frankenstein, and this was the first preface that Mary Shelley wrote, because in the original 1818 edition of the novel, Percy Bysshe Shelley, in fact, wrote the preface, and he made no reference whatsoever, really, to Gothic literature. So in this account of the waking hypnagogic nightmare that Mary Shelley gives us, she talks very um, carefully about the figure of the artist bending over the creature. And what this gives to us, I think, is an account of a romantic ascendancy of the imagination, that it's the imagination that has led the author in this image. My imagination, unbidden, possessed and guided me. Um, and that sense of her being led into watching what she calls in this bit an artist bending over his creation is really important. Because here, I think, in this particular section of the 1831 preface, you have the gothic durability of Frankenstein, the account of a romantic imagination that is led, unwillingly perhaps, to see its creature, the account of the artist bending over the body, but also the organic parts that is used for that. And what I think makes this a supreme act of gothic narratology in particular is the way in which Mary Shelley moves into the present tense at the end of it. He opens his eyes, behold, the horrid thing stands. That sense of a creature actually coming to the readership is important. So in chapter four, which I began by looking at, you have a mutilated body, a body that is made up um, from different organic animal and vegetable parts. That body, in some ways, can be described as being the body of the novel too, because Frankenstein, the novel that we receive in 1818, is, in fact, a mutilated narrative. It was only in 1817 that Mary Shelley added the kind of surrounding narrative of Robert Walton, the Arctic explorer. So that came later on, and I think that it adds to this tale of Promethean ambition that we get. But crucially, Robert Walton is writing to a silent addressee, Margaret Walton Saville. Now, those were by then the initials of Mary Shelley herself, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. And that silent narratee who receives the story of Frankenstein remains, as I've said, silent. She doesn't pass judgment. But Robert Walton is able to write to his sister, Margaret Walton Savile, in London from his boat. Frankenstein's tale is connected and told with the appearance of the simplest truth. Yet I own to you that the letters of Felix and Safi, which he showed to me, are the only way 
and you know, basically to paraphrase because of time, those are the only physical testimonies that this story is true. So Walton relies upon manuscript evidence of a creature, the manuscript at the heart of a novel, in order to say that this tale that Victor Frankenstein tells him is true. But we cannot stop there. Gothic is about mutilated tales. And it's really interesting and often overlooked that actually we find towards the end of a novel that Victor Frankenstein alters Robert Walton's own writing. Frankenstein discovered that I made notes concerning his history. He asked to see them and then himself correcting and augmented them in many places, but principally in giving the life and spirit to the conversations he held with his enemy. Victor Frankenstein regards his creature as the arch enemy, Satan from Paradise Lost. But it's interesting that he mutilates the narration and testimony of a story just as he mutilated the physical body of his monster. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Angela there, I think, gave us some sense of the broader story of Frankenstein, and it reminds me that I probably should have asked at the outset, there's no obligation to have read the novel before you came, so don't feel embarrassed if you haven't, but I'd just be interested to know who has read Frankenstein here. Okay. Because, you know, some of these references to Robert Walton, to the story of Safi and so on, are ones, unless you've read the novel, you probably don't mm -hmm. realise what, sure. what, what yeah. they are uh, and what they're doing in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this extraordinary kind of um, Chinese box-type structure mm -hmm. that yeah. it has, um, that the narrative is anything but linear, which is um, one of the very striking things about it. I, I wonder if we could um, start off just um, picking up on some of the things that you, you, you've touched on, Angela, and in terms of the book itself. Um, I'm interested in who read it at the time, and in particular, I'm, I'm struck by how the, the Gothic literature at that time mm -hmm. seemed in some ways to be perceived and presented as a female literature. I mean, you know, Anne Radcliffe, of course, was the yes. famous Gothic novelist. Mm -hmm. It certainly presented that way in Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, where she kind of parodies it. Um, in some sense, Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights are drawing on Gothic traditions. Was it seen as a, a, you know, a, a woman's literature at the time? Or who, who were the readership of the Gothic? literature generally and of Frankenstein in particular? Yes, well that's an interesting question because I think it may have been perceived by certain anti-Jacobin male commentators of the 1790s and 1800s as being a particularly female form of fiction and of course Anne Radcliffe who was called the Shakespeare of romance writers who wrote five famous gothic novels was seen as being the pioneer of that genre um, Mary Shelley read the Italian, um, her novel of 1797 and 1814, and The Mysteries of Udolfo in 1815. So just before she is writing Frankenstein, she's reading two of Anne Radcliffe's most famous novels. And I think that's interesting because they weren't just published then. By then, they were over 20 years old. But it's not simply a feminine fiction 
One other character who visited the Shelleys in Byron at the Villa Diodati was the Gothic author Matthew Lewis, who wrote one of the most infamous Gothic novels, The Monk, um, which was full of sex, violence, matricide, you know, you name it, it was in there. <laughs> do, do, we, do we have any account of Mary actually meeting yes. him and talking to That's him right. uh-huh. about his work? Well, I don't think that she went to see him much at the Villa Diodati because she didn't like him. Mm. But she had read The Monk in 1815, and that's in her journal, Mm. where she says that she's reading it. And she doesn't comment on it. You know, when she's reading Anne Radcliffe, she says, read the Italian all day, a really happy day. She doesn't actually pass judgment on The Monk. But I think there's lots of The Monk, not only in Frankenstein, but also her later fiction as well. Um, she has this great essay, it's fabulous, called On Ghosts, um, and she actually refers to the bleeding nun of Matthew Lewis as a monk mm. in it. So Gothic wasn't just a feminine form, but you're right, Phil, Jane Austen made it sound as if it was right. a simple female genre. <laughs> and it, it sounds as though, and it sounds as though the, to, to me, seeing some of the, the reviews of Frankenstein at the time, that it was kind of seen as a sort of sensationalist kind of literature, you know, right. in, in that tradition of the monk and others. And yet, of course, it's so much more than that, that it was yes. um, in the... At the time, if people found political allusions in it. Mm-hmm. There's you know, obviously all the reference to contemporary scientific debates going on, and there's an awful lot in there about birth and death. And you know, the, the, it's a far, it has far more depth than sensationalism. But was it seen at the time as just an example of sensationalism and to some people a rather um, absurd or um, despicable form of sensationalism. Mm. Well, Miranda mentioned Walter Scott's review of the novel, which came out in 1818, and he wrongly assumed in that review in Blackwood's magazine that Percy Bysshe Shelley was the author. And he said, this is the son-in-law of Mr Godwin. It it was really interestingly Mm. phrased. But he talks about how the marvellous in literature um, has remained with us in that review, and he's slightly disapproving of it. But it's really interesting that he um, was actually a big fan himself of Anne Radcliffe, although he complained about some elements of her fiction. And overall, I think that he's fairly positive about the novel in the review. Um, Others weren't as kind, and it was only with presumption or the fate of Frankenstein, the first dramatisation in 1823, um, that Miranda mentioned, that the novel really took off. And um, and became gothic. I think that was really in the play form that it reached its full, rather joyful gothic flower and everybody was rapturous about it. But the, Uh the exquisiteness and the subtlety of the writing had completely vanished. Exactly. Yes, because right. because in that play form, all of the complexity is stripped away, and you have kind of the the beginnings of the the James Whale movie, don't you? Mm, the nineteen thirty one movie. But, it's a and much comedy. simpler story. And yes, the, yes, the, the, co- the comic character. assistant Fritz, who yes. is there the whole way through the nineteenth century. Yes. And yes, it becomes a melodrama, doesn't it? But one thing that Mary Shelley liked about it was that um, they kept the creature nameless. Um, on the play script, it, it just said, 
blank line played by Mr. Cook, and she really mm. appreciated the fact that it, it hadn't been christened at all. But not just nameless, mm. but mute. I mean, it seems yes. to me that's such a crucial change that's that right. has affected uh -huh. the way we think about the creature well, thereafter. It's, it's so sad when you see the, the later Karloff versions and you see the creature becoming somebody who can say food, smoke, and you think this is the creature who spoke like Milton. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and French as well. Yes. yes, indeed. Yes. And, and who speaks in the book in Miltonian language as well, isn't it? It's a language out of time. It's and incredibly baroque. Frankenstein, sort of as you were saying, he can knock Frankenstein off the page in his eloquence. Yes, absolutely, yes. Because he takes so much from Milton and Volney mm. and others. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about that moment of creation that you talked about. Because, again, for people who haven't read the novel, um, it's actually left completely obscure how she did it. She never explains, uh, and in fact, well, Victor never explains. In fact, he explicitly says to Robert Walton, I'm not going to tell you how to do it in case you're um, corrupted by it as well. And so there are no sparks, and there's no, you know, no, no, nothing explicit about well, electricity spark, at all. Of, there's a spark, spark of life, spark. but there's mm -hmm. not the... And, uh, and using the word infuse. Yeah. So you're, you're infusing a spark. Mm -hmm. The spark is... Uh, infuse it, you've got to infuse a material and electricity is a material substance at this mm -hmm. point, albeit without weight. And so you're, you're putting the, inf the obvious inference to anybody who's up on science in 1818 is that you're putting some kind of electricity mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Spark is interesting because spark goes back to the older electricity of what we now call static electricity rather than the galvanic electricity uh, that Davy was interested in. So, so, so it's, a, it's an interesting move on her. So you think that because she talks, uh, Mary Shelley talks in her 1931 preface, uh, 1831 preface about galvanism only mm. then, but you think in 1818 she wanted the, the knowledgeable reader to infer that electricity yes, was involved. But, but the old fashioned form of electricity. Yeah. Because mm. otherwise yeah. you wouldn't use the word spark. Yes. Mm. And there is that earlier instance in the novel that Frankenstein recounts when he's a boy and he witnesses the effect of lightning upon the tree, which mm. was referring to Franklin's experimentation as well. So, you know, I think the, the electricity stuff is definitely there carrying through to that moment. But, uh, but how interested do you think she actually is in the science? Well, Shelley was very interested in science. He didn't blow up his laboratory. Mm. But Mary, do you think that when Mary wrote the novel, she actually... I, I just rather feel she doesn't. She's fascinated by the consequences of this read, idea. I don't think you read Davy if you're not interested in science or some sort of <laughs> True, sense. but I meant in her novel. I, I totally accept that yeah. she was fascinated by experiments, but I wondered in the novel where the description is so very brief of the creation of, of well, it's Frankenstein. Because she knows it, it hasn't been done, and therefore she has to sort of skip the technical details. I mean, that's, mm. And then she dresses that up, as Phil's just pointed out, mm. by, by saying, I'm not going to tell you how it's <laughs> done. <laughs> so you th do you think that was an intentional and probably, in retrospect, a wise move? Because yeah. if she'd tried to explain in detail, as H.G. Wells would have done, yeah. um, it would look ridiculous. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Mm. But I, I wonder also whether that, you know, that act of creation is so obviously central to the story, but also so elusive in the novel. But what's she, what's she actually creating? Because what you've got are bits from the charnel house put together. So you've got a body, and 
Frankenstein's very clear in his narrative that that's what they've got. And he applies the instruments of life, and this infuses with a spark of life. What's he actually creating? That's not immediately obvious, to, well, to me at any rate. Mm. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think I, I, I'm also... The, the other fascinating thread that's running through it is, I, I suppose, how we're meant to feel about the creature. Um, and there again, it seems ambivalent. There are times when certainly Victor is talking about it as a fiend and a vampire mm. and so on. Um, there are times when it seems perhaps we are meant to see it in that way, and other times yes. when it is clearly the most sympathetic mm. being in, in the novel. I mean, what, what do you it, think? It seems that? to me that one, one thing one can easily miss out in looking at the scientific aspect is how deeply um, involved both Shelley and Mary were with the idea of education and parenting, mm -hmm. and that there's a very, very clear message given that Frankenstein immediately, having created very strangely a creature described as of gigantic stature, hideous appearance, although he has carefully made it himself quite knowingly, picking the pieces, and he immediately rejects it on appearance only. Yes. Um, he, he is seen as a bad parent. And I think that is a very important part of the message, and the fact that he uses this language with increasingly hysterical vehemence, it mm -hmm. becomes more and more the demon, malignant, yes. evil, mm -hmm. when for a long time there really isn't any evidence that the creature's mm -hmm. done exactly. anything. He does become malignant. Man mm -hmm. teaches mm -hmm. him to be so. But Frankenstein mm -hmm. rushes away as soon as the creature comes to life. That's I mean, right. Yes. Is, I mean, uh -huh. This is not the reaction one would expect from an experiment. One would say, oh, yes, I've, <laughs> I've succeeded. What did you think he was doing? Yes. Yeah. 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 What did Shelley think yeah. he was doing? The, that, that whole passage seems to have a sort of dreamlike logic. It doesn't make psychological sense in that mm. sense. Yes. You know, that it's only in that moment when he's made the thing, it's only when he's animated it that he suddenly decides it's so hideous that's and then he runs off uh -huh. and that's the last you hear he doesn't return it's yeah, as though he's uh -huh. just uh -huh. forgotten that he's made this yeah. thing and it's What's interesting how that chapter be begins because it begins with a sentence it was in a dark dreary night of november that i beheld the creation of my toils and you can hear in that kind of plosive language, a dark, dreary night, uh, you get an insight into his mindset as he is actually beholding um, his creation. Um, he's clearly not predisposed to like it um, because it also talks about the candle extinguishing. Um, so that gothic atmosphere that she has at the beginning of a chapter, I think, predisposes us to to anticipate that he's going to run away. Well, it's also a very literal account of what it was like at the Villa Diodati when the house was so yes. dark mm -hmm. in yes. July that they had mm. candles lit in yes. the afternoon and uh, all the shutters yeah. closed. Right. And it really yeah. was like a dark and dreary night in November. So yeah. mm -hmm. maybe it's a deliberate connection. Yes, yes, oh, yes, absolutely, yay. Before we open up to questions, I want to uh, see if we can clear up one thing um, in particular, which is... To what extent was Mary Shelley self-mythologizing in her 1831 preface, where she gives this account years after the event of what happened, and that doesn't quite seem to square with some of the facts as we know them historically at the time? What do, what do you think? Uh, if, I, if I can jump in, because it's <laughs> yes, a pet, pet theory of mine, which you might disagree <laughs> with. It's this thing of Kubla Khan, 
which Byron had brought into being. Um, he was the one who actually encouraged Coleridge to publish and had even provided some of the money and the volume, um, the little set of poems, Kubla Khan and The Pains of Sleep and Christabel Chris. had all come out to the Villa Diodati and were being read there. And that extraordinary preface to Kubla Khan, the man from Porlock who had interrupted the dream, had triggered, which you would know far more about than me, a, a kind of fashion for reveries, dreams, the way things would happen. And by 1831, Mary Shelley was very, very poor, desperately bringing up this child with Shelley's disapproving family on her own. And she was paid, I think it was 30 pounds only for the copyright, and her father was paid um, 50 for, for Caleb Williams. But nevertheless, 30 was worth something. And she really wanted this book to sell. And so I've always thought that she deliberately lifted that idea of the reverie, which may be sacrilege to say, and that she, she just made it up to mm -hmm, sell it. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. Uh -huh. I, I, I think that, that that's right. Um, it's hard to tell, but, you know, I, I love the way that she actually... Oh, sorry. Um, maybe you can't see it rat screen, but you might be able to interfere. But she could have hesitated. She says, I saw, I saw, and she repeats herself as if she's taking you into her own vision. And um, this is a part of a much longer preface where she sets out um, the circumstances of a creation. And I think that it is a self-mythologization. It's a preface that begins with her saying, you know, it's not surprising that I, as a daughter of William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft, should um, write a novel at such a young age. Um, she wants to assert her authorship, mm. and she asserts that through her um, parental heritage and also her literary heritage as well. I, I find it fascinating also how this image of it came to me in a dream yes. just recurs throughout the 19th century, not just in literature. That's right. I mean, this is how... Uh, Rob Louis Stevenson says he conceived of Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, it's how uh, uh, um, Bram Stoker says he conceived of Dracula, but also it appears in science, doesn't it? That yeah, you have Kekulé yeah. dreaming of Not the Benzene. Not sure I have to say. Uh, no, well, no, absolutely. <laughs> I don't think, but, but because it's this sort of trope that everyone yeah, uses. Yeah. It, yes, yeah. that's right. It's, it, even in the first Gothic novel, The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole, he claims that he dreamt... Um, of a, a giant helmet coming towards him, a suit of armour in his home, Strawberry Hill. So that was 1764. So it becomes hmm. quite a, a big literary drive. Right. Almost as though it validates the idea, I yes. suppose, that you've mm -hmm. got mm -hmm. it this way. Yeah. Well, OK, well, I want to open up the questions now. We have 15 minutes left, and I'm sure you have plenty. So please, if you have one, raise your arm. Yes, right in the front here, madam. Yes, yes. <laughs> Well, first of all, thank you. That was an absolutely fascinating discussion from everybody. I just wanted to ask, because it was just mentioned slightly, was Percy Shelley's uh, interest in science and experimentation, and could you tell us a bit more about that? Because Mary must have witnessed that too. Well, Frank, you probably know what the he most went, He went to Eton, studied science, did one or two explosions, more, um, which is not entirely untypical for the time. Um, what, but but, that, but that, that continued. So one of the books he studied 
quite extensively was Davies' Elements of Agricultural Chemistry, uh, which is the uh, rendition of a set of lectures that Davies gave to the Board of Agriculture about how he used chemistry to improve agricultural production. Uh, it's actually a sort of summary of agricultural sciences from the 17th century to the early 19th century, one or two bits, original bits by Davies, but not very many original bits by Davies. Um, and Percy Shelley read that, um, and there's about 20 pages of notes um, in his manuscript um, of that on sort of potato production, how many potatoes you can get out of an acre, uh, and so on. So there's, there's, there's certainly a very strong interest um, by, by Shelley um, in scientific matters, again, with Davy as, as, as a key figure. And wasn't this quite a common thing amongst Romantic writers at that time? And Coleridge also had an interest. Yeah, well, I mean, Coleridge and David were extremely close friends for mm -hmm. two or three years and maintained a friendship to the end of their lives. So, I mean, um, just before Davy was due to come here, uh, Coleridge had this wonderful idea of setting up a chemical laboratory in Southey's house in Keswick, where Davy would come and teach Wordsworth and Dorothy Wordsworth and... Um, uh, Sully and Coleridge uh, chemistry um, but uh, Davy said well I've actually got this job at the RI and it pays £200 a year um, and there was clearly no money involved um, but those, those romantics were really really interested uh, in science and Coleridge actually lectures here Coleridge gives a set of lectures here I think in 1808 or something at Davy's instigation they're not a hugely successful series of lectures but he says he comes to hear Davy's lectures to restore uh, his stock of metaphors. So uh, it's, it's a very common um, cultural thing for people to, uh, for the romantic... There's a, there's, sorry, I'll say again. There's an issue uh, in England in, from the sort of second half of the 20th century of a division of cultures. Uh, that just did not exist uh, in the early 19th century. And all those romantics are living proof of that. So Wordsworth and Coleridge and Southey were very interested in science. Davy was very interested in poetry. He wrote poetry. And Coleridge does actually say a couple of places that if um, Davy hadn't been the first chemist of the day, he'd been the first poet of the day, which is mm -hmm. extraordinarily generous. Tribute. I don't believe it for a single second, actually, having read lots of Davies' poetry. So there's all those connections uh, which are still being teased out by, by historians and literary scholars. Mm. Thank you. Other questions? Uh, at the back there, and now I can hand you. Yes, can we reach? Uh, there's a, there will be a microphone coming up. Thanks, John. Um, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's related to, to that question and the division between art and science that you suggested. Um, there's a, a, a sense, I suppose a received sense that the novel is a, a gothic novel that warns of the dangers of science and thus, I guess, the um, triumph of the imagination. And yet I've rather uh, read it as the, the dangers of the wrong kind of science. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that the key to that might be um, the characters of Kremp and Waldman. And that Waldman represents a kind of uh, romantic um, uh, association with old alchemical science yes. and the maligned Kremp with a modern, uh, more prosaic version of science and that simply Frankenstein chooses the wrong one. Mm -hmm. um, how far do you see the important division between those two characters as um, uh, a key to the novel? Oh. Feldman is based on Davy. He's Davy to a, to a T. Enthusiasm 
experimentation, rubbish history of science, um, all that sort of uh, thing. There. I haven't never, I've never quite worked out who Kemp is based on. I don't know if either you have no. uh, um, any, any ideas. No, the, the Waldman thing is, I think, widely accepted to be yeah. Davy, but it's interesting. That, no, I don't, I've never read anything about Kemp. Mm-hmm. No, well, it could be Lawrence Abernethy stuff. I'm not sure, but yeah. Yeah, there were those two figures, Abernethy and Lawrence, who, who could have fed into it because they were both being That's discussed right. as, as yes, doctors and lecturers dynamic. at the time. And one of them was Percy Shelley's physician as well. Um, but I completely agree with that. I hope you don't mind if I leap in. I've just published a, a, an art, a very short piece of the conversation today, you know, an online opinion thing saying that it's not about bad science. I think that Gothic literature isn't necessarily anti-science and it's really interesting that Mary Shelley puts in the novel after this that, you know, art um, and creation should be done in contemplation and, you know, with a, a distance of space and time. So I think that what she condemns is the impetuosity of Victor Frankenstein rather than his, you know, ambition because initially he says that he wants to um, benefit mankind by eradicating disease. So in many ways that aim is laudable um, and I don't think that she would have seen that as being a bad thing. So although Chapter 4 could give us a sense that um, she is anti-science. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, She was very curious about science, excited and interested in it, Um, but she she always thought that anything should be created, um, not in the heat of the moment, but with a, a little bit of distance and time. I but think that, sorry. sorry. No, I, I think it's just interesting in the very last chapter when um, the, the creature has been chased by Frankenstein mm-hmm. to the ends of the earth and the creature's rather helpfully left little sort of rabbits and bits of meat to help him along the way to find him. He's, he's become quite kindly to his creator. And finally, um, Frankenstein is rescued by Walton on his boat and gives Walton a little lecture mm-hmm. on how to behave. And first of all, he wants him to carry on and pursue the quest, and the sailors don't want to do that. Yes. They want to go home and be safe. But then he says, interestingly, um, that it would be good if Walton continued with science, but the lesson he must learn from Frankenstein is not to have ambition. Mm-hmm. And I find that very odd, because I would have thought, and Frank, well, well, no, surely a part of science is surely be cautious, but also ambition must be an well, important the, part of it. Well, well, there is, since the end of the 16th century, there has, in English ideology, um, been, a, been a strain of ideas that if you, if you understand the natural world, you can control it. It goes right the way back to Francis Bacon. Knowledge itself is power. That ideology uh, was, uh, has never gone away. It's still with us today, just as the cabinet minister's talking about science and its potential, uh, potential value. Um, and Davy is interesting because Davy vacillates between science as a utilitarian system, the Baconian system, as, uh, as his lectures of order agriculture indicate, but also science as a cultural norm. Um, and Davy shifts that position quite radically while he's, while he's here because he starts off in a materialist 
uh, utilitarian fashion and very rapidly realises that what his audience in this room wants to hear about is the natural creation of the world. And he starts using phrases like the supreme being, supreme creator, and mm -hmm. so on, to shift the discourse uh, into, um, uh, into cultural terms. And in England, we've still got that ideology, and it's not going to go away anytime sooner. So. I th but I think you're absolutely right that it, it's that ambivalence and that vacillation that seems to be in the book itself. You get a very mixed message about <laughs> the, the value of ambition in science. And of course, Robert Walton is representing that. He's an Arctic explorer that ha who has this ambition. And so his function in the story seems to be much more than just as the person there to tell the tale mm, at either yes, end. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. There was a question just here as well. If you could take yes, thank you. Um, my question is more of a regarding the, the literary traditions of the early 19th century. That One of the things that strikes me when I read the novel is it's because so much of the dialogue in it is re people repeating what other people have said who are repeating what other people have said, it's very seldom clear what language anyone is speaking, yes. with the exception of Robert Walton. Yes. Um, so I, I've read the novel multiple times, and I have no idea what Victor Frankenstein's native language is. <laughs> is he Swiss French? Is he Swiss German? The name implies that he's Swiss German. All his yeah. friends have French names. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, he, he goes to university in, in Bavaria and seems to have right. no problem talking uh -huh. to Kremp and talking to Waldman, and, and then he goes to England and has no problem talking to people there. <laughs> um, Scotland. It's, it's rather like a, some American science fiction television show where everyone yeah. in the galaxy speaks English. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, Andrew, what's that about? What's going on there? Yes, what's going on there? That's a really good question. It's, it's one that sometimes my students have argued about with me. He says, I am by birth a Genovese. Um, the, the creature listens to the de Lacy family who teach him language, um, and they will be speaking French. But then he's reading Milton's Paradise Lost, um, Volney's Ruins of Empire, seemingly in English. So we, we don't know, really. Um, I guess it could reflect upon, I, I'm making excuses here, I guess, but Mary Shelley's own cosmopolitanism, you know, the, her travels through Europe and um, her deep interest in, you know, European languages and literature and culture, and um, because she read widely of European literature as well as English literature. But I... I don't think we can really answer the question, to be honest. <laughs> Unless we could say that, that, that this creature who's so perfect, who speaks so well, you know, is a polyglot. You know, he, he can speak um, many different languages. <laughs> Other questions? Uh, yes, could we take one up here? Okay, so throughout the book, there's like very, there's loads of blurred lines between evil and good. You, you can't really tell what it is. And most people who read the book, they come to question who's the real monster, whether it's Victor or his creation. Mm -hmm. But in the end, if you elaborate it more, you realize that Victor was pursued by his ambition, which is his fatal flaw. And the science, and maybe like show science that is bad, mm -hmm. but then the create, wait, the creation, yeah, the creation, 
-hmm. is kind of pursued by his loneliness and the fact that he's rejected by all these people and he doesn't have anywhere to go. And mm -hmm. since he mm -hmm. was like brought up like a baby and he was a child growing up yeah. in such a rejected environment, that's what kind of yeah. raised him up to become mm -hmm. bad. So what, who do you think, who or what is the real evil? Victor mm -hmm. or the monster or the science or the loneliness? And the nature of the thing. Yeah, <laughs> good question, because we've talked a bit about the monster, but what are we meant to think about Victor himself? Because I'm not clear about that. Um, you know, all, the pe all his friends can continue to think of him, even Robert Walton does, as someone quite noble. Mm -hmm. So what, mm -hmm. what do you think Mary wants us to think about Victor? Well, I mean, the, the subtitle is Frankenstein of a Modern Prometheus, and it's important to bear in mind that Percy Bysshe Shelley at the same time was writing his great poem, Prometheus Unbound. And William Godwin had also written a, a Promethean um, text as well. Now, there are different versions of Prometheus, but I think that the one that Mary Shelley is taking is the good version of Prometheus as being the benefactor to the world. So I don't think that, she, with that subtitle, she wants us to think um, of him as being evil. And I think this is why it's endured for 200 years, because the allusions to paradise lost in it. At one point, the creature compares himself to Satan. Then he compares himself to Adam, you know, challenging his God. But then at another point, he says that Victor Frankenstein is Adam, um, and he is the God. So that kind of mobility of the, the illusions and the way that the, the kind of similes are moving about means that, I, for me anyway, I can't settle and who is at fault. And I guess that that's why I've read it so many times because it doesn't allow me personally to say that Victor Frankenstein is evil. But there's, there is also the fact that Mary's father wrote this extraordinary book, Caleb Williams, which is yes. called The First Great Detective Novel in English. That was the one that got 50 quid when Mary got 30 in 1831, <laughs> so they still thought well of it then. And Mary and Shelley tremendously admired Godwin's novels, mm -hmm. as, as did Byron. And Caleb Williams is using the idea of a doppelganger, where there are two equally balanced characters. There's the, um, the pursuer and the pursued in exactly the mm -hmm. same way that yes. we have with Frankenstein and the creature. Mm -hmm. And it's the same dynamic where you really cannot put your money on mm -hmm. either of them, because in sure. a way, they're mirrors of the same character. Yeah. And I think that's very much intended. Mm -hmm. yeah. And, yeah, and, and the things which they merge towards the end of the novel, so mm. yeah, that's all really work out. Which, of course, they have in the myth. You know, Frankenstein kind of means both. We, you uh -huh. know, it's yes. not quite clear. Yes. And of course, for anyone who saw the Danny Boyle production at the National Theatre, that was clearly mm. intended yeah, in the way that uh -huh. Benedict Cumberbatch and Donnie Lee Miller swapped roles uh -huh. on different uh -huh. nights. Uh -huh. So that is a very interesting mm. yeah, theme. We're going to have to finish it there. There's so much to talk about with this book, but uh, we will have to finish. Thank you to my panellists, and thank you to all of you.